Would you do it? It's powerful, isn't it? You think about your children. I remember when ours were, all of them were first born. I would sneak into their rooms at night and they would just be in the crib and I would stare at them and stare at them. Just absolutely precious. It's important that we not forget that, that, that God, he feels that same way about Jesus. It's not as though in his divinity that he's disconnected emotionally. Because of his divinity, if we love our children as much as we do, how much more does he love his son? If we say to ourselves, I couldn't do it, it's only because he is divine. It's only because he is perfect that he was able to give this world such, such a profound gift. And that's the series that we are in together, this idea of the nearness of God, because that's why he gave his son. That's why Jesus came and died for you and I, and so that we would not have to live, as Vanessa shared of the parable of the prodigal son, afar away off, that we could be close with him in this life and in the life to come. This idea that we're unpacking together in this series is that you and I are desperate for the nearness of God. Of all the ways we hope to grow in this life, the physical proximity of our Heavenly Father is essential. This Christmas, our greatest present will be His presence. So somebody who's been tracking with the series Tell me the story that we use to launch the series. The first hand I see. Come on. What's the story we use to launch the series to illustrate for us how we need to be near to God if we want to grow? No one has been here. This is all your first time. Oh, there's Chuck Benbow. Yeah, the study. The study between the developing worlds and industrial worlds in uh, growing children. That's good. All right. There's an iTunes gift card for Chuck for being brave. So there was a study that was done between children that grew up in industrialized countries and developing countries. And the children in developing countries, they actually develop faster than industrialized countries because they're always in constant human contact. And what an illustration that is for us in our life that we've got to be close to God. We have another giveaway we're going to do for David and Hannah. We have a Chick-fil-A card since this is their first Saturday night back. You can do a little date night there. Come on. The nearness of God. He wants to be close to you and you need to be close to him. You need to be close to him. There should be something inside of us that says, I don't want to live if I've got to live far from my father. So each week we're kind of kicking out some verses that, that, that kind of speak to this idea of the nearness of God. In James 4, 7 through 8, we've been saving this one. This might be one of the most popular verses that speak to the nearness of God. It says, therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's one of the most famous verses in the Bible when it talks about the nearness of God, James 4.8. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. What's James talking about there? He's saying stop duplicity. Stop living a double life. Be all in or not. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, then follow him wherever you are and whoever you might be with. Don't be a double-minded person. Don't give yourself to duplicity of life. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. What is that about? Does God want us to be downcast and depressed? People know. He's saying there should be some sense of regret and remorse in us at times when we realize the selfishness of our human heart. Number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're going to talk about that last phrase there in italics in just a minute. There are 10 verbs right here in these few verses. 10 What is God saying to you and I in James chapter 4? He's saying to us that, yes, there is a nearness of God that we experience at times in our lives when he just shows up. There's nothing that we have to do. He just comes because he's a loving father. But he is also saying to us, if you want to experience my nearness in all the ways that are possible, this side of heaven, there's things that you've got to do. Sometimes you've got to be the initiator. Sometimes you've got to act. And so right here, James is just throwing out verb after verb after verb after verb. And he's saying to us, you can initiate closeness with God. And that's what we've been digging around in this series. God is willing to do whatever it takes to be near to us. But are we willing to do our part to step into his presence, the nearness of God? He will exalt you on his terms. So you can imagine if I was sitting up here and and there was a, a row of people out there that I really wanted to be close to. If I sat up here and just complained the whole time, I wish I, wish I could go sit with them. I wish I could be near. I, I feel so far away from those people, right? I mean, you all would look at me and say, you're an idiot, right? Get up off your rear end, walk over there, right? I could just, I could walk over here. I could sit right down. I could say, you know, I'm going to sit next to Shani. I could just do it. It's not complicated. And God says the same thing to you and I. If you feel far from me, then do something about it. If you feel distant from me, do something about it. I've given you a book that spells it out how you can move towards me. And if you move towards me, what does James 4 say? You're going to find me there. If you draw near to me, I'm going to draw near to you. And that's why he wraps up that series of verses by, I will exalt you. What does that mean? That he's going to put us up on a pedestal so other people can worship us? No. He's saying, I will exalt you because the greatest exaltation that you and I can ever be given by our creator, our heavenly father, is to be invited into his presence. He will exalt us by drawing near to us so that our hearts can be enraptured with a sense of closeness that we are in the presence of our God. So in this series, we did Egypt, the nearness of heart. Every week, we're talking about the narrative of the Christmas story. We're going to do it again tonight. We pick up a little bit about the geography of some of the key cities that they're instructive to us. And then we dig around in some other texts in the Bible that pick up on the theme that we explore together. So we open the series talking about the nearness of heart. Last week, we talked about Nazareth. We talked about in the least of these, where Jesus said, as much as you've done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, that we draw near to God by being among people and in place, in places and among people that are under-resourced. Tonight, we're going to talk about the nearness of God that we find in church, Jerusalem. Come on, next Saturday night, Christmas Eve. You're going to be here for Christmas Eve. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss it. There's a life story that someone, they just committed just, just recently to share Saturday night. If that was the only thing that was going to be shared, you would want to come to hear it. It's going to be a powerful service. We're going to be an hour together from 5 to 6. It's going to be a great time together. Come on. You bring, I'm telling you, you've got neighbors, you have friends that you think will never go to church. They will come to a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. There's something about the holidays that give people a sense of permission. For some of those people, they have, they've never even tasted of the nearness of God. It could be the greatest gift that you give to somebody. Come on, as you bring them with you. And then we're going to wrap up on New Year's Eve, Bethlehem, the nearness of God in spirit. So this is the idea that we're going to unpack together tonight. 
congregational settings that are community-based, a local expression of the church in a specific geographic location promises to all who will come a nearness with God that our hearts are aching to possess. I'm going to get a hat like that for Christmas. I'm just throwing that out there. It doesn't really matter. Congregational settings that are community-based. This is an intentional phrase that we're putting together at the City Life Church. This is a congregational setting. A time where we come together for corporate worship. A time where, where we come to be together, where we worship God, where we pray together, where we celebrate with one another. And the idea of being community-based is important. It means that in the crowd that you are a part of, the gathering is part of a broader strategic effort to bring you into closer relationship with one another. If you're just a part of a crowd and you come as a stranger and you leave as a stranger and all you ever are is a stranger, that's not church. There is a relational part to church that matters. Showing up in a room disconnected and spending your life that way, your name might be on a membership role, but you've never really joined a church. It's community-based. It's relationally intense. It means that you're not just a casual attender. It's that you want to know others and you want other people to know you. And in a specific geographic location, it means that you show up when the church shows up. You can't join and then just watch some preacher on TV for the rest of your life and say, I'm part of a church because I took a membership class and now I'm just getting a sermon right every weekend through my television set. You've got to go to a specific geographic location because that's where other people are. If there's not a relational dynamic, you can call it a lot of things, but don't call it the church. And the nearness of God, the nearness of God that all of our hearts are aching to possess. All right, so let's dig into the narrative portion. Then we're going to do some talk about the geography, and then we'll dig around to some other text. So Luke chapter 2, verse 25, Luke 2, 25. So there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Come on, he was a James 4 kind of guy. Looking forward to Israel's consolation, which means their, their deliverance. And the Holy Spirit was on him, not in him yet, right? Because we've talked about the nearness of heart. The atoning substitutionary death of Christ has not taken place yet. So the Spirit of God can't live inside of a person. That can't happen until after Christ. So this is the clarifying piece there that Luke is giving. It's an important detail. And it says, it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. Let's stop there. Jerusalem was the Rome of Judaism. If you're a Catholic, right, Rome is the, is the central geographic location for Catholicism. I grew up in the Assemblies of God in my early Christian experience, right? And the Assemblies, all roads lead to Springfield, Missouri, right? Denominations, movements, they, they have places that are significant. Centralized, Jerusalem is, is the Vatican city for Judaism. He's in the temple complex. Everything about the Christmas story teaches us something important about the nearness of God. Of all the places God could have led Simeon to go to experience Christ, he led him to church. He could have led him into a field. He could have led him into another city. He could have led him on a, on a road. He could have led him anywhere. God, everything that God does, he does with great intentionality. 
And so he says, I'm going to put a marker in the Christmas story so that the world will know that there's an experience with me that you will only have if you show up at the church. So Simeon is a man who's been given a great promise by God. We've talked about it before in this series that every person of Judaism longed to be born into the generation when the Messiah would come. And God said to this man, you're going to see him before you die. And so not only does he give him this great promise, not only does he lead him supernaturally to the very place where Jesus is going to be, but he leads him to that very place on the very day that he's there. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people in this crowd. Simeon picks him out. You track him with a story? It's absolutely supernatural. It would be like you on Black Friday in MacArthur Mall picking out the one child in a moment that you're supposed to find that you've never met before because God spoke to your heart. God is a God who sees all things and sometimes he whispers them to somebody else because he wants the world to know that he's real. And so he's saying to Simeon and he's saying to the world, not only am I real, but you're going to find me at church if you'll only come. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your your slave in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Right? Because Jesus is named, Jesus is Greek. It's for the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. I've seen your salvation. You have prepared it. In the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's a biblical word for every non-Jewish person. And the glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, meaning that you've got to choose Christ. There has to be a decision that you make. And a sword will pierce your own soul, so he's prophetically speaking to Mary that about her grief, seeing her son who's going to have to die for the sins of the world, and that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, which is a prophetic word spoken over Jesus, that he's going to judge the world, which is the text that we read last week in Matthew 25. But God's not done yet. Come on. Then there's Anna. There was also a prophetess a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple complex serving God day and night with fasting and prayer because, come on, she knew there was a revelation of the nearness of God and she wanted to spend her life in that place in his presence. And at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to begin to speak about him and to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There is a nearness of God in congregational settings that are community-based that if we don't show up, we're going to miss out. All right, let's talk a little bit about the geography of Jerusalem. You know, with Egypt, we identify that Egypt is, a, is, the, is, is geographically significant because it rep- represents atonement. It represents the substitutionary death that Jesus died for you and I, the nearness of heart, because Jesus died for us. I can't have Emmanuel, God, with me until I embrace Jesus. God is, Jehovah is salvation. And so last week we talked about Nazareth. 
the geography of Nazareth. It was in a geographic depression. It was a no-name city that had no mention in the Old Testament. All the important things that happened around it, that, that it was a place of obscurity. And that's given to us in the Christmas narrative, as we talked about last week, because God wants us to know there's a nearness that we experience in his presence when we go into places and among people that are under-resourced, the least of these. And so tonight we want to talk about Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the the geographic significance of Jerusalem is that the city tells the story of the church. So in Exodus 33 is where the story of the church really begins in the Bible. Beginning in verse 7, it says, It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and to set it up some distance from the camp. And everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord, what does it say? They would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrances of their own tents. They would stand at the entrances of their own tent, and then the the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And when the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents, and inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Come on, God wants to speak to you like that all the days of your life. Speaks to you as a friend. And afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, this is one of the first mentions of Joshua, who we know is his successor, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Right here, as the nation is being born, God is laying down this marker for us if we will only go to the place where God says that he will be. We will find him there, but we've got to James 4. We've got to do our part. We've got to move. We've got to act. We've got to show up. I talk to so many people, and they talk about how distance they feel from God, but they just sit idly in their life. They don't open that book. They don't bend their knee in prayer. They don't show up for church. And so God says back to you and I, well, of course you feel distant from me because you're not doing any of the things that I ask you to do to experience my presence. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. The tent of meeting was a temporary place for the church of the Old Testament until the tabernacle or the, 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 the tabernacle could be built. It's the tent of meeting then the tabernacle. It says then the cloud covered the tabernacle. This was a more permanent structure, but it was still something that could be moved. It could be broken down and set up, but it was more elaborate than the tent of meeting. And then when they first built the tabernacle, this is where we're picking up. They had a a consecration service. And it says, as they gathered together at the tabernacle for the first time, it says, the cloud covered the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord, it filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer even enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey, following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so that the whole family of Israel could see it. And this continued throughout 
all their journeys. For the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, setting up the tabernacle, breaking it down, the presence of God was in that place. And if people were going to go and experience his presence in the unique way that they could there, does it mean that there's no mentioning of people experiencing God's presence away from the tabernacle? Absolutely not. As we read this story, we know that people experience God's presence all the time, even in the, the story of Moses. But God says, hey, I'm a big God. And I've placed myself in all different kinds of settings. And if you want to experience everything that I am, then you've got to go to all the places that I've called you to be. And you, we cannot read this book with honesty and not acknowledge that there is an experience that we have with him when we gather together with his people at a time of worship. So once the tabernacle is, is done and Solomon builds God a temple, here we have again, they have their consecration service. Come on, we're going to have a consecration service one day for our first home. Are you ready for that? Come on, I pray for that all the time. God, couldn't it let, let what happened in this book happen for us wherever that's going to be? How great would that be? God supernaturally manifests himself. You can't even get in the room. Why is everybody standing outside? No, because God won't get out of there. It's just big clouds just filling up everything we can't see. God, it's in here to give us an appetite to believe it could happen again. It's not in here to tease us and taunt us for what we're not going to have. It's in here to stir up faith for us to say, oh, God, I want to have that in my lifetime. So here's Solomon, tent of meeting, tabernacle. Now we've got the temple. It says, when the priests came out in the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord had filled the temple. And then Solomon prayed, O oh Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness, and now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. And then the king turned around to the entire community of Israel standing before him, and he gave this blessing. And we're not going to read it because it's quite long, but you should check it out. It's there in 1 Kings. And he uh, gives a prayer, then he preaches a a little bit, and then there's a song that they sing, and then all of a sudden you get to the ninth chapter, and it says, and this is the Lord's response. Listen to what he says. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. I have heard your prayer and petition that you have made before me, and I have consecrated this temple that you have built to put my name there forever. Listen to what he says. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. God says that same thing about every house of worship in this world today. His eyes and his hearts, come on, they are in this place at 28 Harpersville Road. Can you find God everywhere else? Sure you can because he's everywhere all the time. But there is a special experience. There's a unique expression of his presence. There's a nearness that waits for you and I if we will just show up to the service, that there's an encounter with God that waits for us, come on, every time we open those doors. Come on, but the story of the church keeps going to Acts, doesn't it? 2, 1 through 13, I'm just going to read these verses, and, but the, the references are there for you. And then as every week, the outline's on the website if you want to check it out. But on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. What city were they in? 
They were in Jerusalem. Come on, you better believe it. In Jerusalem. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of the mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. God could have sent them to any city in Israel, but he sent them there for lots of reasons. But I'm telling you, one of them is this, because he wants the world to know that there's a revelation of his presence that only comes at the house of the Lord. It says, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to read Acts 2 in a series of verses with these other verses that we're reading because when Solomon said, I have created a temple for you to live in forever, it's not recorded for us, but I can tell you what God whispered back. I don't want to live in a temple that was built by your hands. I want to live in the temple that I built with my hands. Now, we know from the first sermon in the series, if you weren't here, you can podcast that, that that's not possible until Jesus died on the cross, a substitutionary death so that the Spirit of God could come live inside of us. But from the very moment that God could no longer live in man when he departed from Adam and Eve, we believe that they really had to leave the Garden of Eden, but it also serves as a metaphor for us for what was being lost to them on the inside, the Eden of the heart, the indwelling Spirit of God, that God did not come and live back into the hearts of man until after Jesus has died in John 20. We read that in that sermon where it says, He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. God's plan has always been to live inside of us. God's plan has always been to live inside of you and me. But just because he lives inside of you and me doesn't mean that that's the only expression of his nearness that we're supposed to have. It doesn't mean that that's all that we need. He created us to need each other. He created us to need community. If, if that were the case, then the story of the New Testament would end right here in Acts 2. That would be the end of the Bible. Everybody would have just gone their way. All right, we got the Spirit of God. That's all we, that's all we, we don't need. We don't need to be together. Boom. But we, we talk about Acts 2 as being the birth of the church. Why is that? Because these people understood what we're talking about today. There is a nearness. There is a presence. There is an experience. There is a revelation of the creator of the universe that we will not have if we don't show up. Are these the only places geographically where people encounter God? Certainly not. The prophets and the judges in the Old Testament and early apostles in the New Testament, for example, experience God's presence away from congregational settings. In this series, we're challenging you to believe God wants you to have it all. He wants you to have it all. Every opportunity for the nearness that's possible. You hear me talk about this all the time. One of my favorite things to do is to walk up into a candy aisle at a store as an adult with disposable income and say, I can buy one of everything on this aisle and my mother cannot tell me that I can't. <laughs> well, you know, one of these days I'm going to call my mother while I'm in the candy aisle and just say, you know what I'm doing right now? Yeah. I have $20 in my pocket and more in a checking account and I might just blow a bunch of it. I might just go get a basket right now. There's something to be an adult, right? We were talking outside a, a couple of weeks ago about, about uh, sh the, going to the shooting range. And, and, and some of us that are younger were talking with someone that was a little bit more mature. Can we say that? And they were talking about the guns that they had versus the guns that this other guy had. And, and, the, and then one guy said to this other guy that was a little bit older, 
one day when I have disposable income like that, I'm going to buy some guns like that too, right? As you mature in life, there's some benefits that often come. You can get some nicer toys. We, 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 we connect with that, don't we? As human beings, the sense of being able to have it if we want it. The sense of being able to take possession of it if we, if we want to. Because we've all been in situations and scenarios where we've experienced limitation. Even though the desire was there to take possession of it, we couldn't for whatever reason. Because someone was telling us that we couldn't or because we didn't have the money when we wanted to. I don't care what you put on your list that you can't have. What is it compared to the presence of the creator of the universe? What is it? What is it that you could have in this life that compares to him? And he says to you and I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. If you'll follow what's in this book, you can have every part of my presence, every part of my presence that's possible. I hope that's the great desire of your heart. Come on this Christmas. The Jerusalem of today. We don't have to go back to Jerusalem. Come on. We don't have to get on a plane to go be at the church that's there. You can be at the church that's here because when Jesus rose from the dead, come on, now he was in the world everywhere all the time. When he was here as a man, he had a physical limitation. But when he rose from the dead, now Christ can be in all places. That's why in John 14, 20, it says, And at that day you will know that I am in my Father and that you are in me and I am in you. And I don't think that phrase, that day, is referring to a specific moment in time. I think that Jesus is talking about all the days in your life that you're going to experience the revelation in a deeper way of the divinity of Christ. I'm in my Father. All the times you're going to experience his life. Come on, we call it the God life stirring inside of you. This idea of Christ being in you. But here in this series, we're talking about you and him. He says that, right? You're in me, he says. He says, you can be in me. And he's saying that day, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about a lot of things, but one of the things he's talking about is every day that you show up for church. Every that day, every day you choose to go. Every day that you choose to show up, you're going to be in me, and you're not just going to believe it in your mind, not just trust it in your heart, but come on, you're going to feel it with the eternal part of who you are. Colossians 1.24 that says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. This is the Apostle Paul talking. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, and he, he just says, his body, the church. He wants us to know that the body of Christ is not just some poetic concept. It's not just some, some metaphor. It's a reality. That if you want to experience what it means to be in Christ, if you want to experience the nearness of God in a unique way, if you're going to be in Christ, then you've got to be at church. Come on, here's another one. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his what? It's his body. 
It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, it says, let us go right into, we've been digging around in this text multiple times in this series, but we've always stopped short of verse 25 because we wanted to save that for this message tonight, but it's not an accident. The writer of Hebrews puts these two concepts together. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. We talked all about that in that first sermon in Egypt. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Now jump down to verse 25. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying there is an experience, an encounter. There's a nearness with God that he wants you to discover if you'll only come when the house gathers. Congregational settings that are community-based, a local expression of the church in a specific geographic location promises to all who will come a nearness with God that our hearts are aching to possess. I want to share this definition. It's my definition for what a, a church is. And then we have somebody that's going to share a special with us tonight to kind of bring us into the home stretch for the service. This is my definition of church. Every entity in the first century that warranted the title church from the Apostle Paul had a specific geographic identity, had a recognizable organizational structure, had an identifiable membership, had a weekly corporate worship service, the collection and distribution of material resources, and its members actively engaged in ministry according to their giftings and callings. You can call getting together with other people anything you want, but if it doesn't fulfill all of these things, don't call it the church. You can experience God when you get together in those settings. You can experience a measure of nearness with him. But if it doesn't include all of these things, don't call it the church because these are the things that the Apostle Paul called the church when he wrote that word, come on, in the first century. When he gave us the gift of that word in the first century. He understood what the church was. That's why he spent so much time teaching the world about it, inspired by the Spirit of God to put the revelation of what the body of Christ looks like timelessly, generation to generation, because he wants us to know that if we will go there, we will find God in that place, the nearness of God. Come on, I want to invite you to enjoy this song with me. Spoken in you 
Can you say thank you to Brittany?
going to close with this. This is Exodus chapter 12. This is verse 4, and this is when God was giving Israel the instruction for the Passover lamb. It says, if the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of the people that you should apportion the animal according to what each person can eat. The house is too small for one lamb. Then they would come together, neighbors, until they had enough people to rise to the measure of the portions that would be served. So if Jesus is the Passover lamb, and we know that he is, what kind of crowd do you and I need to be a part of to the rise to the measure of his life? Father, may it be, may it be that of all the things that we do in this life, that we would show up at church so that we could be in Christ, so that we could have another measure of the nearness of you, our greatest gift. And just as you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask you, to, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else except for this. If, if you're just bold enough to say tonight, say, Fred, you know what? I'm going into this holiday season and I, I just, I'm one of those people that feels a little bit distant from God. I'm one of those people that when Vanessa was up there, my heart started beating a little bit faster earlier because I felt like she was talking to me. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else than just this moment, but I'm just going to ask that you to just where to stand where you are. I just want to pray with you before we close. If you're just here tonight and you would be willing to have the courage to say, I just, I feel a little distant. I feel a little distant. Just going to ask you to stand right where you are. Father, we just lift up every person that's standing in this room tonight. We lift up every person that's just demonstrating the courage to stand. Because in their standing, they're doing James 4. They're saying, I'm going to draw close. And that, Father, I declare over their lives tonight in Jesus' name that just as in this moment they have drawn near to you, that you're going to draw near to them. They're going to find a way to stand up tomorrow. They're going to find a way to stand up on Monday. They're going to find a way to step into a moment just like they've stepped into. The, they're going to find a way to initiate, to make contact. And you are going to show up in. You're going to be the cloud that fills their temple this holiday season. In Jesus' name. Come on. And everybody said together. Amen. Come on. We'll see you next week. I'm going to go get some hot tamales.